after a break of, I don't know, about a month, maybe three weeks, we are back in the Gospel of Matthew. And we have come to a turning point in Matthew's Gospel. But the message, in a way, continues to be the same. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus proclaimed the, righteousness na the righteous nature of the kingdom by his teaching. And now the nature of the kingdom is taught in verses 8 and 9 by the acts which Jesus performs. And you'll see a continuity uh, in the actions of Jesus. Many of them are consistent with the words that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the message continues to be the same. And here Jesus walks the talk, as it were. Before I dive into the, uh, the chapter, I just wanted to remind us a little bit about where we have been. So let's go back and think about the Gospel of Matthew. A commentator has described the purpose of Matthew's Gospel as the following, and it comes at the end of your handout notes um, under quotable quotes. The purpose of Matthew's Gospel was to provide a church with a distinctly Jewish Christian ethos, a work from which to teach and preach. And it declares that Jesus is Messiah and Son of Man and supremely Lord of the church, in relation to whom, as the fulfillment of the purpose of Judaism, the believer's understanding of and attitude to law, ethics, mission, and service must be formed. One of the commentaries that I have been using in preparing this uh, series on Matthew, and it's actually my favorite commentary of all, uh, is written by F. Dale Bruner. And he was a missionary uh, in the Philippines, as I recall, and he was teaching Matthew, and he realized that in his understanding, and I think he's right, that Matthew is kind of a manual on uh, Christian life and Christian theology and Christian discipleship. And if you think about the different reasons why Matthew included what he did, this uh, summary, I think, is apt. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Supreme Lord of the Church. And he fulfills the purpose of Judaism. And believers like us come to understand the relationship between the teachings of Jesus and the Old Testament law, ethics, how we are to live, mission, what we are to do, and service, how we are to serve one another. So, Matthew is uh, not just an excuse for someone to come and preach Sunday by Sunday, of course, but it is a manual for Christian living. And I hope that week by week, we grow in our understanding of the will of Jesus for us. Back in chapter 4, verse 23, we were told that Jesus would begin a mission of teaching and preaching. But it wasn't very long before we got into the Sermon on the Mount. And the question might arise, why the Sermon on the Mount, uh, why does the Sermon on the Mount sort of come in the middle of a description of Jesus' preaching and teaching? And I think it becomes obvious when we look at the story of the leper in the first few verses of chapter 8, that without the Sermon on the Mount, we would be left quite confused. We'll come to the, look at this, the story of the leper, and I'll read it in a moment, but I just want to remind us that there, Jesus reaches out and he touches the leper, which was explicitly forbidden in the law. 
But at the same time, Jesus tells the leper to go and follow what was prescribed of lepers for cleansing. You're to go to the temple and you're to present yourself before the priest. So there is this kind of a, um, an uncertainty about the relationship between Jesus and the law. And that's something that was of particular interest to Jewish followers of Jesus in the very beginning, and it continues to be of interest to us. What is the relationship of the Old Testament law um, to the teachings of Jesus? And over the past several weeks, probably months, when we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, I hope that you'll have come to have seen that uh, Jesus does not discard one iota of the law, but he understands it in a unique way, and he has a go-deep to the heart kind of a righteousness attitude when he comes to look at the law. And because Jesus is God, um, he is at perfect liberty to interpret the law with a measure of liberality. When the Messiah would come, Jews believed, the Messiah would fully interpret and help the people understand the law, and so he did. So in chapters five to seven then, we've had uh, kind of an exposition about ethics and now we come to an exposition on uh, a term that people like to use in theological circles called soteriology how to be saved and here jesus uh, offers help by healing various people and in chapter 8 uh, up to verse 22 where we are today there are three healing stories and they each pertain to outsiders before I read the passage, I just want to share a, a um, kind of a trivial story with you that I hope you'll be able to relate to. And it has to do with feeling like an outsider. When I was a teenager, my favorite place was camp, and it was Pioneer Camp in Alberta. And I went to camp from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper, and I knew everybody, they knew me. Um, I was kind of the... Um, the camp clown in a way. Um, if I had an idea about a skit, people would follow it. I, um, you know, enjoyed horses and uh, I was one of the guys. And one summer we came to Ontario to be at the cottage and I missed camp. So I said to my mom and dad, you know, I really want to be at camp. And they said, well, there's a camp down the road. It's called Minioe. It's a great camp. Why don't you go? So I went to Camp Minioe. Nothing wrong with Camp Minioe, but it was the shock of my life because I was an outsider. Nobody knew me. I would, I would have a great idea for a skit, and people would just kind of go, oh, yeah, right. And then they just march on with their own agenda. That was the longest two weeks of my life. It was miserable because I was on the outside. Now, that's a trivial example, but it's also a safe one because... Um, I'm probably touching a heart here because we each know of ways in which we have all felt like an outsider in a particular environment. You try your best, but somehow you don't fit in. And so here, Matthew has recalled in the teaching ministry of Jesus three occasions that just struck him. And they are the story of the faith of a leper, the faith of a centurion, and the, uh, and the, uh, the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So I want us to take a look at uh, these three passages um, as we come now to see uh, the teaching of Jesus continue in narrative form. 
And I'll start to read in verse 1 from the translation that I have uh, given. And I'll just go up to the end of each story. He, that is Jesus, having come down from the mountain, had many crowds following him. Jesus is the new Moses. And he came down from the mountain, um, having delivered his own version of the law. And it says literally, many crowds followed him. Um, this just speaks to me about the historical nature of Jesus. Um, it, it only makes sense that, that there would be all kinds of people everywhere following him if he was doing the kinds of things that he did. And look, a leper came, bowed down before him, and said, Lord, if you wanted to, you could cleanse me. And extending a hand, he touched him, saying, I want to be cleansed. And just like that, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus says to him, see that you tell no one, but go by yourself to the priest and present the gift that Moses commanded in demonstration to them. In this first instance of Jesus ministering to an outsider, this is a member of the covenant community. He was an Israelite. But he had a disease that was the most dreaded of any in the ancient Near East. It was one that literally isolated him socially and physically from everyone else. This was a man who wasn't allowed to live inside of the city gates. He had to live on the outskirts of town with him and other lepers. And anytime somebody came by, they had to shout, unclean, unclean. This is a man who by right was an Israelite, but he was ostracized, and there was no cure for leprosy. Indeed, it was thought that healing a leper was about as difficult as raising the dead. So a leper comes, and here we get the beginning of a lesson on faith. He comes, and it says he worshipped him. The verb to come and bow down is the word that's normally used of worship. But people back off from that a little bit because it, it, it kind of seems as though maybe the leper didn't know enough to worship. But I think uh, that uh, it should be taken seriously. That, Jesus, that the leper came, bowed down before him, and said, Lord. This theme of coming and bowing down and saying, Lord, is also going to be exemplified when we come to read the story of the centurion. And it tells us something about the authority of Jesus and how we come to be healed by Jesus. We come to recognize him as someone who is special, someone who has authority, someone who is different. And although they weren't offering something, uh, kind of a Trinitarian divine word when they said Lord, Matthew knows it. And he wants to say, this person may have only meant sir, but really they were already on the verge of knowing better. If you want to, you could cleanse me. And then, extending a hand, he touched him. For the first time in this person's life, since they have had this illness, Jesus reaches forward and touches him. F. Dale Bruner, in that commentary that I was telling you about, talks about how this is a gospel moment. Um... I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where you have been deprived of uh, affection 
Um, maybe when you had, uh, you know, you were, you were being quarantined or something, but there's something within us that just longs for human touch. And here, Jesus breaks the Torah. Well, he doesn't. He, he, he knows the Torah. He's the author of the Torah, but he goes against a commandment that is in it by extending a hand, and it elaborates. He extended a hand, and he touched him. In that moment, I think Bruner is right in saying, that, my friends, is the gospel in a nutshell. Think of the incarnation. God in the person of Jesus Christ comes and lives as a human being, speaks our language, talks our talk, enters our culture, eats, drinks, sleeps, laughs, cries, and reaches out and touches us. All of us have been hurt in one way or another by feeling like an outsider. And to the leper, as well as to us, Jesus says, I want to help you with that. I want to help you get over your being an outsider. Be cleansed. And just like that, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus then said to him, see that you tell no one. Uh, we don't want the word getting around that I'm the Messiah because people will misunderstand what that means and it will be hard for me to manage. But go to the priest and present the gift that Moses commanded in demonstration to them. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I haven't come to, to abrogate the law at all. I've come to fulfill it. And so here he's telling uh, the, uh, the, the leper to go to Jerusalem. That would be the first time he would ever have entered into Jerusalem. He would present himself before a priest being a poor individual, probably, he would have had a lamb for guilt offering, flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and oil, and either two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And there the priest would make atonement, and he would be pronounced clean. The man is socially integrated back to his covenant family. My friends, Jesus wants those of us who are on the outside to be on the inside. You know, of all of the miracles, um, this is probably one that, that kind of summarizes theology because um, the man's alienation also kind of reminds us of the extent to which we are broken and fallen creatures, alienated from God, ostracized from his presence. And that situation of isolation and alienation from God is one that we experience by virtue of our sin. And Jesus, the healer of the broken, ostracized individual, has come and touched us and said when he died on the cross, I want to be cleansed. And at that moment, when we respond in faith like the leper did, we are cleansed. And if I can elaborate just briefly by being a little bit allegorical or whatever you might call it, in response to that, we go and we offer our gift at the Lord's house. We go and live a life of service in obedience to God's laws. Keep sure I'm, make sure I'm counting uh, and staying on track with my, uh, with my, my message. So the second element has to do then with the cleansing, or with the centurion. 
verse 5 following. When he entered into Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, summoning, by, summoning him by saying, Lord, my lad has been laid up in the house, paralyzed, and is suffering tortuously. And he says to him, I myself am willing to come and heal him. But the centurion replied by saying, Lord, not I am worthy for you to come under my roof. Instead, just say the word and my lad will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, be gone, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to the ones following, I say with certainty, not in anyone in Israel have I detected such faith. I say to you, many from the east and the west will come and will be table reposed with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. There will be the crying and the grinding of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go. Because you have believed, so it shall be for you. And the lad was healed at that very hour. There are some similarities between this story and the leper, and there are significant differences. This man was a Gentile. And Matthew um, has um, probably been looking at um, Mark's version or, and, and, and Luke's, um, and has uh, adapted Luke's version um, to draw attention to the fact that this is a Gentile. In, in Luke's version, we're told that um, there were only intermediaries that came between um, the centurion and Jesus, and that the centurion had no direct contact, and Matthew has abbreviated this. Luke also tells us that this man was a very generous man towards um, the Jews. He, in fact, paid for the synagogue in, in Capernaum. So he was, a, he was a friend of the Jews. But Matthew wants us to hear this as a centurion, as a simple Gentile. And the Gentile has the same response as Jesus, as, as the leper. The centurion comes forward and summons him by saying, Lord, here's my problem. In neither case does either of these individuals actually ask a favor of the Lord. They simply describe their situation. If you wanted to, you could cleanse me. My lad has been laid up in the house and is suffering terribly. You see, to come to Jesus, to declare him uh, Lord... And to tell him your situation is probably about as much as you need to say. Does this not remind you of saying short prayers on the Sermon on the Mount? Because the Lord already knows what your problem is. He knows what your situation is. And he's on your side. So if you tell him what your problem is, Jesus is probably, uh, most certainly in fact, uh, willing to respond. And so in verse 7, Jesus says to him, I myself am willing to come and heal him. Now, there's a Jew-Gentile consciousness here because Jesus says, I myself, he's probably saying, I, even though I'm a Jew, I'm willing to come into your house and heal uh, this, this person. But the centurion already knows uh, that that would uh, bring defilement. And so the centurion replies by saying, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I understand Jewish laws. Uh, and besides, um, I'm not worthy in other respects too. But just say the word and my lad will be healed. Um, 
Here, the man doesn't need Jesus to come and to, uh, you know, bow over and, and wave his hand or anything. He just says, just speak the word and it'll happen. And he's invoking his own background as a centurion. As I was thinking about this, uh, I, I realized that some of you have very varied professions. And um, I hope that whatever God has called you to do helps you in your relationship to Jesus. You see, this man was a centurion, and he knew what it was to give orders and to see people respond. And so he said, I get it. I'm a little like you. You see, if I tell somebody to do it, it's done. And I know that you can do the same. So I give commands to people, um, and I think the inference here is uh, the centurion is saying, you're one of God's generals. Uh, and you're a servant of God, whatever, whatever you say will be done because you're under God's authority and you have the power to do this. We're told in verse 10 that when he heard this, Jesus marveled. There are only two times in the New Testament, as I recall, maybe it's only in the Gospels, I'm not sure, but when Jesus marvels, once is here, and another time is when he marvels at the lack of the faith of the Jews. So here, Jesus, uh, the word is called thaumadzo, and you can almost hear that wow in it. it Jesus thaumadzoed and he was saying amazing and then he says not in anyone in Israel have I detected such faith and then this is unique to Matthew alone in verses 11 and 12 he takes a segment that Jesus used elsewhere and he has Jesus say it here and there's no reason to to to, to question that Jesus actually did say it um, did, did say it here but what Jesus has done is he's turned this um, healing episode into a lesson about the future. And he says, many from east and west will come, he's talking about the end days, and they will be having dinner with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens. This is a new teaching. This is breaking edge stuff. You see, um, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Gentiles would come to the holy city they would kind of be able to sort of um, actively spectate and take part in that end time when the Jewish people would come home and be with the Messiah and be with God. But here Jesus is saying, no, they are going to be right at the dinner table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he goes on and most shockingly says, while the sons of the kingdom, the covenant community, will be thrown into the outer darkness and there will be the crying and the grinding of teeth. That would have just absolutely astounded any Jewish hearer and would have offended them greatly. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying it doesn't matter whether you're a leper. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you come to me and you put your faith in me, believing that I can help you, I want to do that. And I shall. And anyone who doesn't do that has no right. There, there, there's no one who can kind of say, I deserve to be at your table. And so Jesus says to the centurion, go, because you believed, so it shall be for you. And the lad was healed at that very hour. We're Gentiles. And uh, in a way, um, we have had to ask Jesus to come and change our life and to put our trust in Jesus without ever actually having encountered him. And the man is saying kind of the same thing. I believe that you can do something in a different time and place, 
and all you have to do is speak the word, it will happen. So my friends, in a different time, in a different place, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus died for you, and when he did so, he brought Gentiles who believe into his presence and brought us to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we believe. Now, church membership doesn't give you any more entitlement than Jewish nationhood or Jewish, uh, Jewish ethnic um, association. So the issue is um, whether we are responding in faith and looking to Jesus to be the one who brings us from the outside to the in. And so the lad was healed at that very hour. Then the third story is the healing of a woman. And here, um, the woman doesn't actually respond in faith. Jesus sees a problem and he addresses it. And this underscores the fact that it's not faith that is some kind of a critical thing. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 14. After Jesus entered the house of Peter, he saw his mother-in-law laid up with an ongoing fever. And when he touched her hand, the fever left her. She was raised, the same word that is used for being raised from the dead. She was raised up and commenced serving him. Jesus did hear what he did with the leper. It wasn't acceptable for a man to touch a woman in first century Judaism. Jesus nonetheless touched her hand and the fever left her. And then I think there's a little mini picture here. This may be reading too much into it, but the fact that she was raised up and commenced serving him I think is intended to remind us that we have been raised with Christ and are uh, also um, serving him. Anyway, it's a lovely touch. Um, those of you who have been to Capernaum know that there is actually a house of Peter. And this isn't like, uh, you know, a, a shingle from Mary's cottage being found uh, in, in Wales. Uh, this is the real deal. Because uh, from the earliest centuries after Christ, uh, it's clear that there was a building in Capernaum which was a place of worship. It was modified a number of times. And the only logical explanation, really, is that that was from the earliest of times, uh, within 100 or 150 years of the time, a place of worship. And you can go there today and see it. I say that simply to remind us that these are not fairy tales, that Jesus uh, lived and he actually did these things, and he has this authority which invites us and commends us to put our faith in him. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. And now the summary. A reminder that Jesus' ministry of physical healing was also a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew loves to point out ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And as evening time came around, this was on the Sabbath day, we learned from another gospel, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He expelled the spirits with a word, and all those having ailments were healed. Thus, the declaration by the prophet Isaiah was fulfilled that said, He himself took our illnesses, carried away our infirmities. So there's a summary here of the ministry of Jesus and how it involved expelling spirits, which indicates a kind of a spiritual power, and him healing the sick, which is something that is also talked about in Isaiah chapter 53, along with the spiritual salvation that we normally think of when we think of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was bruised from our transgressions. There's a spiritual dimension in Isaiah 53, which Matthew's aware of, but here Matthew focuses mostly on the fact that these are physical ailments. 
um, the Messiah, the servant, understood his job to heal illnesses and to uh, cure infirmities. Well, friends, that in essence is the story, and I want to, uh, in the time that remains, which is not much, simply remind us of a few of the abiding lessons that come from this story. There are two things that are emphasized time and again in this episode. The authority of Jesus. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they said this man has authority. Uh, and he, he is not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, and the authority of Jesus is underscored um, several times in the, in, the, in the episode. And as I thought about that, I, I wanted to kind of say, well, okay, we need to recognize that Jesus has authority. And we need to submit to his authority. And then I thought, well, that's a nice idea, Glenn, but there it's completely countercultural. Because in the postmodern era, we have been told that anybody who wants to exercise authority over you is on the doorstep of abusing power and is, is trying to make a move on you that is illegitimate. And so we're nervous about anyone who has authority or exercises authority. Um, you know, when I was, a, in, I guess, a teenager, one of the favorite bumper stickers was uh, question authority. And in the educational circles that some of you travel in, um, I think you're, you're sort of taught that um, anybody who exercises authority, patriarchy, governance of any kind is, uh, is, is verboten because somebody is trying to get one up on the other. And so there's this idea that is part of our culture that diversity is good. In fact, we don't need any kind of centralized uh, ethical system. And in fact, the more diverse it is, the safer it is because nobody is going to try to get the upper hand. Uh, what you believe is okay, um, you know, whatever floats your boat is fine, whatever floats my boat is fine. That's completely contrary to what the Gospel of Matthew is saying here. Jesus has authority, and he's entitled to it because he has credibility, because his teachings are unique. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. I mean, with, if that person really was a leper, they would have had, you know, digits that would be literally coming back on the end of, it, on the end of his fingers. And so this is a man who has authority, and we are to submit to his authority. Now, I think there's reason to doubt submitting to authority in all kinds of cases. And there are lots of people who are out to abuse authority, but Jesus is not one of them. I don't know whether you've ever had the rare experience of having uh, a boss that you actually liked and respected, <laughs> but chances are, if you ever had a boss that you liked and respected, you recognized that they had integrity, that they were interested in your best, and you could simply trust them. And there's something very freeing about working under authority when the governing structure is just and not corrupt and not seeking to kind of um, do you in but to undergird you and to support you. And so we're to submit to the authority of Jesus. And this is an authority of somebody who says, I want to, let me help. And it's that kind of person before whom we bow. So the authority of Jesus is something that we need to uphold and we need to teach and we need to maintain despite the fact that it doesn't sit particularly well in a postmodern culture. The second, of course, has to do with faith. Jesus said to the uh, centurion, 
um, inasmuch as you have believed, it will be done for you. And the lad was healed in that very hour. Faith is critical, but the faith here is worth noticing because it's not a sort of a Pauline faith. It's a very practical faith. It's a faith that expects something in return. It's a faith that comes to Jesus saying, you can do things that no one else can, and I need your help. So it's immensely practical, and people come out of the woods, you know, looking for Jesus because he can help them, and he does. And so there's a, a wonderful picture of faith here. I remember the first time that I realized that the Gospels and Paul came together um, in this way. The problem with that is that Paul teaches justification by faith, but in the Gospels, people are made whole when they reach out and touch his garment, or when they say something. But my point is this, reaching out and touching Jesus' garment is an act of faith. Coming to Jesus and saying, um, if you wanted to, you could make me clean, that is an act of faith. Uh, coming and saying, I have a lad who's at home sick, but say the word and it will be done. These are tangible everyday expressions of faith, and I think they provide wonderful lessons on the kind of faith that we're to have. But I suspect most of us get that, but the problem is Jesus doesn't always heal. And so it kind of feels today as though uh, we're disadvantaged because you can say, well, it worked for the leper, but gosh, I've had this ailment for years and I've been praying about it every day and it's not any better. So I think what we need to recognize that there's an obstacle here, and it's one that we simply need to, um, to own up to and to, uh, to, to admit. And I think it's helpful to remember, and I hope, I hope this is true, Harold, who's got a PhD in New Testament, who's here, and I hate it when people do that to me, Harold, I'm sorry, I, I, I won't do that, but um, I'm just thinking that we need to remember that these episodes were kind of lessons. And Jesus was here healing in tangible ways as a demonstration of the fact that he was the Son of God. And there's nothing that says every human being in every age from this point on is going to experience something like this. This is kind of red-hot, um, powerful demonstration of the Messiahship of Jesus in a context where it wasn't known and wasn't affirmed. So it's, it's, um, it's healing power that, that was designed to teach the church who Jesus is. And I have in your handout two quotes on healing that I want to draw your attention to, because I think it's helpful. In the one case, and these are two quotes on healing, and with this I will finish, Bruner says, since the resurrection, we must admit that Jesus has not always wanted to heal now. How else can we explain that faith does not always experience healing? It is unfair to teach, as some do, that the only reason healing does not occur is that the faith is insufficient. As if to say, it's not God's fault, God wants to heal, it can only be your fault, you don't have enough faith. Bruner adds, suffering is a mystery whose bitterness is not removed by Jesus' why on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is comforting to know that Jesus too asked questions. Another commentator has it here, and I, I quoted it in the outline. The point of the healings is not so much to be found in the events themselves, but in their witness to the person of Jesus. 
As the Isaiah 53 quotation suggests to the reader who knows the story to its end, the healings are but one aspect of a much more important work to be performed by Jesus. The gospel, in fact, has something far more important to tell than that Jesus healed or can heal today. Disease is not the true enemy that must be overcome. That enemy is sin. For the fallen world produced by sin lies ultimately behind the suffering and sickness of this age. Properly understood, these healings are most important as symbols of the much greater healing that is at the heart of the gospel, the healing of the cross. At the same time, they foreshadow the fulfillment of the age to come when all suffering and sickness are finally removed. Isaiah 53, 4, which is quoted in Matthew 8, uh, 17, guarantees no one healing guarantees no one healing in the present age. What is guaranteed is that Christ's atoning death will in the end time provide healing for all without exception. Friends, that's kind of a long quote, probably too long to quote. But the point is this. We need to keep on having that spirit of expectation and belief and desire that is exhibited on the part of the centurion, on the part of the leper. Today, even when we don't see immediate results, this is what Jesus teaches us to do, and we're commanded to do it. And I think that in our culture, where we are so into instant gratification, instant results, that it's very hard for us to remember that there shall come a day when your ailment is made better. There shall come a day when whatever infirmity it is from which you are suffering will be made whole. That is a promise. And so we have to kind of go through this bit of a time warp and say, Lord, I'm going to have the same amount of faith that the leper had when he got instant results, and you want me to believe in the same way, and with your help I shall, even though it may well be in the future. And so we just need a bit of Christian maturity, I think, and a little bit of patience in order to have the same kind of a faith that is so well exemplified in the case of the leper and in the case of the centurion. My friends, God wants you to be an insider. We all feel like outsiders, and we all want to be insiders. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you are an insider, a member of God's family, and that will include one day healing from all of your infirmities. Amen.